Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Uh, if you would, please open your Bibles to James chapter 1. Again, if you are in the Red Bible, uh, it will be page 1011. James chapter 1, page 1011. James chapter 1, verse 1. This is God's word. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this book of James, God. There is so much treasure within it for us to uncover. God, pray that you would continue to show us your priorities and bury your priorities for us into our hearts through your word, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we pray this, pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if today's your first day back to Jacobswell in a while, you picked a good day to come as we're starting into the book of James. Uh, the book of James is one of the earliest, if not, well, one of the earliest books written in the New Testament. It was written in the 40s, uh, not 1940s, just the 40s. <laughs> it was written not too long after Jesus ascended into heaven, probably a decade or a little bit more. And James is categorized as wisdom literature because it has a very specific application to the Christian faith in everyday life. And it encourages us, the main theme of the book of James is that, especially when life gets difficult, that we would not just be hearers of the word of God, but that we would be doers of the word of God. That we would not just believe in hearing, but that we would believe so much that it would affect our doing. The series subheading is Active Faith for Real Life. And in a way, what the book of James is doing is it's showing what real, vibrant, active Christian faith, how it makes contact with the day-to-day ongoings of our life. For example, how faith comes in contact with making hard decisions. How active faith comes in contact with prejudice how active faith comes in contact with the words that we say, how active faith comes in contact with the worldly passions that all of us face. The book of James is one of, if not the most 
practical book in the New Testament in terms of living out your faith in everyday life. Today in verses 1 through 4, we learn how a living and active faith impacts both our understanding, but also our response to trials in our life. And so I want to dig in and start looking at this. First, I want to look at testimonies of faith here in verse 1. There are two testimonies of faith I want to cover in verse 1. The first is the author's testimony of faith. Look at verse 1 with me. Starts James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you guess who the author of the book of James is? Any guesses? James, good guess. Way to go. You're probably right, depending which James you're talking about. But yes, the name of the author of the book of James is James. And James has a unique relationship with Jesus. James is the half brother of Jesus. And he's the half-brother of Jesus because they have the same mother, who is Mary, but they have different fathers. James's father is Joseph the carpenter. Jesus' father uh, is the Lord God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. So they share a mom, but have very different dads, and they are half-brothers. And so these two grew up in the same household. Uh, They would have eaten dinner together, probably slept in the same room together. They would have wrestled together, played together, traveled together together. James probably knows Jesus better than any other writer in the New Testament because he was the brother of Jesus. He has quite a history with Jesus. And what's so interesting in this passage, uh, or or what's interesting as we look at uh, the story of, of James and the testimony of James, is that James was not a believer in Jesus as Lord when Jesus was alive. I don't know if maybe James was a little bit bitter because, you know, his whole life he had to hear mom and dad say, why aren't you more like your older brother, right? Well, because he's God, okay? And so I'm not like, but, 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 but James didn't put his faith in Jesus when Jesus was alive before his death. And, and we know that because we read in passages like John 7, 5, it says, for not even his brothers believed in him, talking about Jesus. Furthermore, uh, James and, and his family believed that Jesus had a mental illness. Um, it says in Mark three twenty one, it says, and when Jesus' family heard uh, that all these people were following him, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Now this book opens with James acknowledging that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Now let me ask you, what would your brother or your sister have to do to convince you that they are creator God incarnate in flesh? What would would they have to do? Well, for James, what had to happen was the resurrection. And so what we read in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, is that when Jesus raised from the dead, it says, Jesus appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And so it seems as if that James, the brother of Jesus, had a private audience with the resurrected Jesus. And James's life is completely transformed by it. As we read on in the scriptures, what we read is that James becomes really a pillar in the faith, as Galatians calls, Galatians calls him a pillar in the faith. And he becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. 
And, and so you see in Acts chapter 15, you have Peter there, you have Paul there, you have other apostles there, and yet the person designated to run the whole meeting is James as a leader of the church in Jerusalem. So he becomes a man of great faith. Uh, he's actually, he actually had a reputation of having knees that were like camel knees because he was on his knees so much praying to his half-brother, Jesus. James got the reputation of being James the Just because he was so wise and so godly of a person. And so his life was radically transformed by faith in his half-brother, Jesus, to be the Christ, to be God incarnate. And I think why this is so valuable to us is because James's conversion is one of the greatest apologetics or, or defenses for the divinity and the resurrection of Jesus. Because if anybody knows someone is not God, it's going to be their brother, right? It's going to be their sister. It's going to be their family members. I've said this before, but the, the person who is least impressed with the preacher is the preacher's wife. Because the preacher's wife knows the preacher is very messed up. Here you have a, chi- a, a brother of Jesus who has the whole record of the life of Jesus from childhood, and he is convinced, even to the point of death, that his brother Jesus is the Christ, is the Messiah, is God incarnate. And so this is a great proof of who Jesus is. The second testimony, such James's testimony, the author, the second testimony is the audience testimony of faith. He says, to the 12 tribes... And the dispersion, greetings. Uh, this letter is most likely written to Jews who have undergone tremendous persecution in Jerusalem. And because of that persecution, were dispersed throughout the region. We read about it in the book of Acts. If you remember, Stephen is killed because he proclaims Jesus as Lord. He's killed by the unbelieving Jews. And then persecution breaks out. And under that persecution, Christians are thrown in prison, Christians are killed. And so many of them flee Jerusalem and fear for their life. And so in Acts eleven nineteen 19 says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And so I think we have a map up here where you can see, if you can locate Jerusalem, Phoenicia is the region north, and then all the way up to Antioch. And then they even fled over to the island of Cyprus, trying to get away from this persecution. So they were people who understood suffering. Again, I think that their testimony is a great defense of the resurrection of Jesus. Because again, this was written a decade or 15 years after Jesus had raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. There are plenty of eyewitness testimonies around. And the question is, would you, would they, would anybody undergo such suffering and persecution for something that they believe to be a lie? Something that did not have credible evidence. If Jesus had not raised from the dead, if they were not certain of it, certainly they would have just recanted their faith because by holding on to Christ, they were giving up their homes, their businesses, their friendships, their community. You know how hard it is to move if you've ever done that, away from a community to another community. You do that voluntarily. They were pushed out because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And so... These are the testimonies of faith we see in verse 1. The author, James, half-brother of Jesus, who was, I'll just say, a reluctant convert. 
uh, that became a leader and pillar in the church. And then the audience, the Jewish Christians who were suffering for their faith, but remained trusting in Christ because they were so convinced that Jesus indeed was the savior of the world. And that leads us to verse two. These testimonies of faith lead to trials in faith, which actually Stephen talked about up here earlier, that, that there were trials in his faith even after coming to faith in Christ. Verse two, James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now this word trial is kind of an umbrella word, okay? Trial can also be interpreted temptations or troubles. And temptations are trials within us, right? When we're tempted by sin, all of us are tempted by sin almost constantly. When we're tempted by sin, that is a trial within us. But then he also says, or, or then it, it also refers to troubles. That is external troubles, situational troubles. That's suffering and, and brokenness of the world that is bringing trouble upon you. And so it's the internal trial of temptation, but also the external trial of suffering in a fallen world. And notice here that Peter does not say, count it all joy, my brothers, if you meet trials of various kinds. Don't we wish he said if? <laughs> If I had to rewrite one part of the Bible, in my own perspective, this might be the one I would rewrite. But he doesn't say if you face trials. He says when you face trials of various kinds. Jesus says something very similar. Jesus gives a promise, a promise that we probably don't put on our refrigerator, but a promise nonetheless. In this world, you will have tribulation. Now, we might look at those verses and say, yes, of course, duh, we're all going to have trials. I mean, but there are certain sects that wear the name Christian that would say, once you become a Christian, if you're a good enough Christian, if you have enough faith, your trials will go away. You will have all the money you need in the bank. You won't suffer any physical illness. Your, your marriage will go perfect. Your kids will be great. Everything will be fine. If only you have enough faith. But the only problem with that is the Bible, with James chapter one. It's Jesus. Jesus, Jesus was a godly guy, right? Perfect. Did he go through trials? Absolutely. Through poverty, yes. Through physical suffering, absolutely. And so we are reminded here that trials are a reality in life and there are trials of various or diverse kinds that we face all the time. Let me give you an example from my own life. So this is kind of funny, but, but for Christmas, uh, for my son Corbin, we got him ice fishing stuff, okay? New to us, we bought it online. And, and so we're, we're excited about this and we get it all set up and everything. And, and so we decided to go ice fishing on New Year's Eve. And so we pack everything up in the back of my pickup truck and we go over to uh, that's the, the Duck Creek put in that's kind of by the corner of 4143. You can actually see it from the highway. And we pull out uh, the ice fishing shack and we pull it in onto the ice. You can actually see it there to the left. Um, and so we get it all set up and we're all excited. And, and in my mind, and this is how I view it, this is a way to escape from the trials of life, right? Like we're gonna go, we're gonna sit in this, we're gonna drink hot cocoa, laugh, you know, and it's gonna be a hallmark moment. 
It's going to be fantastic, right? This is my picture of what's going to happen. Of course, you know, it didn't go that way. And so we set this thing up and everything's going well. And I turn around and another one of my children has a fishing pole and he's reeling it in because he's trying to uh, unclog the, the, the bird's nest of, 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 of fishing line that's at the bottom of it. It can happen to any of us, but there is this bird's nest of line. And so I am interrupted from going on and doing the fishing that I want to do. And so I turn around and I wish I was more patient, but I said, what are you doing? Don't you know you have to be careful? And then they got a sermon from dad. My poor children, they get sermons all the time. Sermon about how you have to be more careful because it interrupts, you know, my time and I want to go fishing and now I have to do this and it's all about me, right? So then I take this fishing pole and I go into the, the, the tent or the shack to fix it. And as I step in, the floor breaks, okay? Happens, it was okay, we can still use it. But I come back out and I'm starting to get the fishing line undone. And one of my children have now stepped into an ice fishing hole and they cannot get out. And so they are, they are crying out to me, dad, dad, dad. And me being the compassionate dad says, what's up now? Like, what's going on now? Come on, guys. So I go over and, and I help this child get their foot out. And then we take the boot out, which is completely soaked. And so uh, I, again, they get another sermon from dad about, hey, you got to be careful. Now we got to go do this and we can't go fishing and blah, 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 blah. I'm sure I'm the only one who does this. But we go into the ice fishing shack and I have this brand new heater. And so I am looking for my tools to open the box. And my tools uh, by one of my family members was put back into the house because they figured we're not going to need these tools. And so finally I get it open. I put the propane tank in. I go to start it. And you guess what happens? It doesn't start. It's not working. To put it lightly, I was not counting it joy in that moment. <laughs> not at all. I was frustrated. There were various trials. You say, those are silly trials. They are, but they're still trials. There are trials of various kinds that come into our lives every moment of every day. And so let me ask you this. What trials are you facing? Specifically, what is the most difficult trial in your life right now? What is the trial in your life that you said, if I could just get rid of this trial, everything would be great in my life? With that trial in mind, Peter I'm sorry, James, I, I'm going to mess this up, my bad. But James has the audacity not to suggest, but to command us, count it all joy. There's a lot contained in that it. And that it, count it all joy, are all trials. Count all trials joy, brothers. As one preacher said, we don't get to decide if we have trials but we do get to decide how we respond to trials. Trials can either make our heart bitter or it can make our heart better. And Peter says, count it all joy. Now here's the question, how can we count trials joy? Because joy and trials in our own perspective seem mutually exclusive right? Like when there are severe trials, we get frustrated, we get angry, our joy gets sucked away. And yet, how can we have joy in the midst of trials? Well, we need to have a robust theology of joy 
and of trials. And we need to see trials, not from our vantage point, which comes so easy, but from God's vantage point. And that's what Peter helps us with here in verse three through four, as he explains the purpose of trials is for the teleos of our faith. Now, if you don't know Greek, that's okay. I'll tell you what that means in a little bit, but it's for the teleos of our faith. You know, the reality is, is that God could remove every trial from your life if he wanted to. I guarantee you he's removed some trials that you don't know about, that you don't recognize, but he could remove every trial from your life if he wanted to, but he has ordained that trials would be a part of your life. And the question is, why? Why has God ordained trials in your life? Well, look at verse two again. It says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And then he says, for you know. And so he says, what I'm about to say you already know experientially. You already know that it's true, but you forget it in the heat of trials. It says, for you know, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. In this context, this word testing does not mean, it's, it's not like you take a test in school and it's pass or fail. Um, it's not that type of testing. It's a little hard to describe, but this testing is, is referring to um, Metal, metal making, okay, and, and how they make metal and pure metal. First Peter actually talks about this, and the passages will be on there for you, and it helps us flush it a little bit more, what this testing of our faith means. You'll hear a lot of parallel language. In First Peter 1, 6, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes through it is, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor as the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so the picture that, that James and Peter are giving us of this testing is the picture of, we'll just say gold, of gold put over a fire, an intense fire for the purpose of burning away the impurities of the gold so that when it cools, you are left with a more genuine piece of gold. In the same way, what they're saying is when you are in the crucible of trials and suffering and temptation, in those times, God is purifying your heart. He is purifying your faith in a way that can only happen through the ordained trials in your life. And what he says here is that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Another word for steadfastness is perseverance or endurance. You can think of it this way. Uh, if someone is preparing to run a marathon, uh, they prepare. And what they do is they actually specify trials uh, for their muscles, and they specify suffering for their muscles to build them up. And so they'll run two miles and then six miles and then eight miles and then 10 miles. And they'll build their way up and they're introducing these trials to their muscles. They're muscles that burn underneath the pain of these trials. And yet it is building these muscles up for endurance so that it can run the long race. In the same way, God through trials is building up our faith for the marathon of this life, which is still like a vapor, but he is strengthening our faith. Verse 3 continues, says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be, and then here's the word, teleos, that you may be perfect 
and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, God puts us through trials, not only to build up our endurance, which he does, but he does it to make us like the perfect one, to grow us into the fullness of Christ. Romans 8 puts it this way. And we know that for those who love God, uh, excuse me, and we know that for those who love God, all things, that's good things, bad things, happy things, sad things, easy things, hard things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew or foreloved, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And so God has ordained all the trials in your life to strengthen your faith, to purify your faith, and to make you more like Jesus. Paul Tripp, pastor, puts it this way. He says, the grace of sanctification comes to us in uncomfortable forms. Amen. <laughs> God will take you where you have not intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. Why can we count it joy when we face trials? We don't count the pain of the trials joy. That's masochism. But what we count joy is that there is a purpose in every trial of our life. God never, ever, ever wastes your trials. He always uses it to purify us and to build us up in the faith. I'll give you an illustration. Um, it's a great movie in the 80s called The Karate Kid. It's not the greatest movie ever. The greatest movie ever is what? Rocky Four, good job. All right, way to go. I've, I've educated you. But Karate Kid is still a great movie, all right? And, and, uh, and you have this kid named Daniel. And Daniel is getting bullied at school. And so he goes up to his neighbor uh, and he says, hey, will you teach me karate? And Mr. Miyagi is his name. And Mr. Miyagi agrees to teach him karate. And so he says, come back the next morning. So Daniel goes away, so excited to come back and learn karate. He comes back the next day. He's like, all right, I'm ready to learn karate. And Mr. Miyagi says, paint my fence, right? And so he gives him a bucket, he gives him a brush. Daniel gets it, you know, not really happy, paints the fence like this. And Mr. Miyagi, no, 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 no. Paint the fence up and down, up and down. Daniel gets done with the section of fence. He's like, all right, I'm done. He's like, have you done the whole fence? And it's like all the way around the yard. And so Daniel has to paint the whole fence. He's exhausted at the end of the day. All right, he's done. He's excited to come back next day and learn karate. Comes back the next day. What does Mr. Miyagi make him do? Wax my car right? Or wash my car. And so Daniel gets out, starts rubbing it. He's like, no, 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 Daniel. Wax on, wax off, right? Wax on, wax off. If you've seen the movie, this is all very familiar to you. But then Daniel's doing this and he has all of these cars. And so there's all of these trials that Mr. Miyagi is putting him through and Daniel can't understand it. And so he's so frustrated with Mr. Miyagi. He wants to quit. He's like, I don't get it, Mr. Miyagi. I asked you to teach me karate, but instead you have me paint your fence and wax your cars. And I don't even want to do this anymore. And Mr. Miyagi throws a punch. What's Daniel do? Wax on, wax off. Blocks it, blocks it, blocks it, blocks it, blocks it, right? Daniel could not understand why Mr. Miyagi had put him through all of these trials. But Mr. Miyagi knew that he was trying to conform Daniel into the image of a karate champion, right? Why? Because Mr. Miyagi had 50 years on this kid and a whole lot more experience with karate. So let's translate that to our life. We go through trials and we don't understand why God is putting us through this trial. 
But here's the thing. God is not just 50 years older than you. He's eternal. He doesn't only know karate. He knows all things, everything. And so could it be that God who is all-knowing, who is faithful and loving, has a purpose in your trial that you may not understand? Absolutely. And we can count it joy when we face these trials because we know we have a God who will not waste our trials, but will use it for his purposes, for our good and for his glory. Let me press this just a little bit deeper. We typically don't rejoice in trials because trials attack our idols. You know, when I was ice fishing, I wanted to be comfortable. I wanted to be quiet. I wanted to go fishing. I wanted to do all this stuff for me. And and trials attacked those idols. And it made me angry and frustrated. You see, in trials, God is revealing to us what is most precious. And he's rearranging our priorities in life. You see, we are usually most concerned about our comfort, but God is usually, God is more concerned about your holiness and he will disrupt your comfort in order to bring holiness into your life and to make you more like Jesus. Let me end with this. Um, This past Thursday was my day off and I got up and I made a hot cup of coffee and I was walking into our living room to do my quiet time with Jesus, you know, and grow in holiness and all that good stuff. And so I'm walking into the living room with this white carpet and this hot coffee mug. And, uh, and one of my children, who will remain nameless, uh, uh, woke up during this moment and was ninja-like, very quiet. I give them credit for that and gave me what can only be described as a very aggressive hug from the back, okay? And so I get this very aggressive hug from the back. My, my, my head, we, we debate how aggressive the hug was, but this is, how, this is how we Jacksons show love to one another. We aggressively hug one another, but, but the coffee goes all over my hand. It's burning. It spills on the white carpet. They're staying everywhere. And I wish I could tell you I responded better in that moment. I wish I could, but that wouldn't be honest. Again, a sermon from dad. You gotta be careful. Come on, what are you doing? And then I finally get to my devotional time and it's funny how God works, isn't it? And there's a passage about, if you remember after the resurrection, he's sitting with with Peter telling him about all the suffering and death he's gonna go through and Peter sees John walking by. (laughs) So one of my funniest passages. He's like, what about that guy? Um, What's gonna happen to him? And so J.C. Ryle, in commenting on that passage, says, every Christian must remember his own heart first. And so through that, God convicted me, and I went and repented to my son for the way I responded, and he forgave me graciously. But through these trials, God was showing me sin in my heart that needs to be purified. And so I've been praying, Lord, help me to respond to these surprise trials with gentleness, with love, with compassion, like you would respond to them. And I tell you what, I got a long way to go. I got a long way to go. But when I look at the cross, I can be reminded in the most visible fashion that God uses trial in a way that can be counted as joy. 
Because in Hebrews, it tells us that Jesus endured the suffering of the cross for the joy set before him. You see, the suffering of the cross was not only that he had nails put through his hands and his feet. It was not only that he endured the ridicule and mocking of people whom he created, but ultimately he endured the wrath of God for our sins. And he did that for the joy set before him and the joy that was set before him that he could only win through the suffering of the cross was you and was me. And so we see even at the cross that we can count it joy in the midst of suffering. Because friends, if you are going through trials, if you are a Christian, it means number one, you have not arrived to perfection yet. But number two, it means that God has not given up on you and that God is continuing to refine you to become more and more like Jesus. And because of that, we can count it joy. Let's pray. God, I pray for the grace of perspective. Pray, God, that you would give us your perspective in our trials which doesn't come naturally, but supernaturally through your Holy Spirit, Lord. Lord, we don't rejoice in pain and suffering, but we do rejoice that it is not for no purpose, but for a divine purpose to make us more like your son, both in holiness and in happiness as we grow in our relationship to you. And we praise you for that and pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would help us more and more and more to count the trials of our life joy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.